Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. News is the first rough draft of history, but there's a flaw in contemporary reporting. We're living in such chaotic times, in the Anglo-American world at least, that on a daily basis, once you get past reporting on Donald Trump and Brexit, there's room for very little other news. But there's a story out there that is possibly more important. The world of work is changing, and for some it's rapidly disappearing. My own profession is a perfect example. Somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of full-time journalists' jobs have gone in the United States since the turn of the millennium. Mine was one of them. I haven't had full-time salaried employment since 2005. Yet only rarely does this epochal change turn up on the front pages. Eighteen months ago, Princeton University professors Anne Case and Angus Deaton cracked the front pages with a paper chronicling what they called deaths of despair among middle-aged white Americans, many of whom are experiencing this dramatic change in work. These deaths have led to a decline in life expectancy in the U.S. I was in Princeton recently and spoke with professors Case and Deaton about their research and the changes in the world of work that are also changing our society dramatically. When we first saw the numbers on mortality rates increasing for people in midlife, I think we were both shocked. I mean, for a century, we saw progress for people in middle age in the U.S. And then toward the end of the 20th century, for those numbers not only just to flatline, but actually start to increase, was really a surprise. You know, we were so astonished, we were sure we'd made a mistake and that those numbers must be wrong. Well, do you remember, just off the top of your head, round, rounding errors are allowed in this because you don't have the spreadsheets in front of you. What are we talking about in terms of decline of life expectancy? Well, there are two things going on here. Mortality rates started to rise after falling 2% a year for most of the 20th century. They started to increase for people between, say, the ages of 45 and 54 by about half a percent a year. So that that turnaround was big. But life expectancy is actually a little different from looking at the mortality rates. Life expectancy is a number which, as it suggests, is about how long on average do you think a person will live, which is determined by mortality rates in early childhood, in middle age, and old age. And it takes a lot to move the needle for life expectancy with something happening in middle age, but it almost immediately started to happen. So um, life expectancy going down at all is quite a surprise, and I think life expectancy in the U.S. has fallen. The numbers won't sound large, but a couple of tenths of one year's worth of age, but that's a lot. It's a little different for men and women, and some haven't changed very much. But, I mean, there's been no increase or slight declines, and you are talking about percentages, you know, fractions of a percent, for now three years or two and a half years for the general population. For these numbers to show up, it can't be just post-2008. This must have been a trend that's been building longer than that. It is indeed a trend. that What we find is that the three largest increases in mortality rates are for drug overdoses, for suicide, and for alcoholic liver disease and cirrhosis. So we're talking drugs, alcohol, and suicide. 
But in addition to that, for reasons that are not well understood yet, we also stopped making progress on heart disease in the U.S. while heart disease progress continues in all the other rich countries in the world. So when you put those things together, that you get this picture where we've started to turn in the wrong direction in a fairly substantial way. I asked Professor Deaton, a Nobel Prize laureate, for more specifics. So it's men and women, and the the death rates are going up in parallel. Um, you know, when you say, well, it's, it's less educated, but the fact that less educated people are killing themselves in larger numbers is something that's been a big surprise to us and to a lot of other people. Ever since Durkheim, people have thought that more educated people were more likely to kill themselves. I was going to say, you know, because in Sweden, I mean, most people who are going to listen to this will think, you know, Sweden used to have the reputation as being the suicide capital of the world. America is with, by all measures, the most religious of the G7 countries. People here have deep faith, whatever, and yet suicide is increasing. In fact, suicide rates in the U.S. are higher now among whites than they are in Sweden, um, which is pretty stunning. And this is a trend, to answer, to go back to the question you originally asked, that goes back to at least the early 1990s. So a slow, steady drumbeat of increases in what we consider different forms of suicide because we think it's either someone takes their life quickly with a gun or a rope or they take their life slowly with drugs or alcohol. That is something that it took a while for it to build to be large enough for it to uh, cause mortality rates overall to to rise, but it's to the point where 72,000 people died of drug overdoses in the U.S. last year. Your study is economics, but can we step it back and talk about the society as you've observed it, uh, particularly you, Angus, because you, know, you come from the U.K., from Scotland originally, and you've been here how long? 35 years. 35 years. It's almost as long as I've been in England. Um, so I can I can see changes that the day to day increments I miss them. I come home and I say, Oh my God! And not just physical environment, you know, just the way the built environment has changed, but also the way in which people live their lives. There's a certain aimlessness to it, mm. as opposed to the dynamism that I grew up with here in the as a boy in the 50s and 60s. Do you, do you sense that, Anne? You're, you're sort of nodding your head. Well, we think that the economics of this is only one piece of it. And it's what we are able to document is that the, this increase has taken place before recessions, during recessions, after recessions. So we don't think that it's an immediate economic uh, trigger. We think it is deeper but it comes with a lot of other dysfunctions as well. There's a, the marriage rates are much lower. Out of wedlock, childbearing among whites without a BA is much higher. Um, uh, religious affiliations have changed. And something close to 50% of working class young adults aged 18 to 29 say, half of them are not affiliated with any church at this point. So we think that it's it's much bigger than just a paycheck, although these things are very closely tied together, that if you don't have a good job, it might be much harder to get married. 
and but it's not hard to have a child out of wedlock but then you might get to middle age without a family to go home to without a job with good pros- prospects without a real, um a church that's going to support you the decline in unions has done a lot of terrible things to working class people because they've not been replaced by anything else so one of the things they have uh, unions were very important in social life for example, in Britain and here. Um, the unions were a way of talented kids to get into politics. Um, now, of course, all of these talented kids in the meritocracies we live in have been accelerated up and have become university professors or you know, Brussels bureaucrats or something. And none of them are there representing the communities from which they came. So one story I love to tell is that when Clem Attlee became prime minister of Britain in 1945, he had seven members of his cabinet who'd begun their careers hacking coal in the coal face. And now, you know, the members of the, you know, the Blair government or the Brown government, they, they, you know, they're, they're intellectuals and meritocrats who may have come from relatively humble belongings, but they're not representing those people anymore. And so there, we saw a Pew poll not very long ago where more than two-thirds of people without a BA thought there was absolutely no point in voting because the elections are controlled by rich corporations and by rich people. There seems to be a sense that robotics, AI are coming, 20 million more people are going to lose their jobs, this time they're coming for the white collar workers, and it's reported in the mainstream press, in the New York Times, wherever, as, well, this is like the sun is going to come up tomorrow in the East, nothing you can do about it. I wonder what you think when you read stories like that. I think they have robots and AI in Germany, too. <laughs> People are not dying in middle age there as they're dying here. So that I don't think you can think of these things without thinking of the policy environment in which they operate. So I think, for instance, globalization and technical changes made it very much easier for corporations to um, redistribute upwards, but so has policy and so has government action and so has the lack of worker representation. There's a whole list of things that contribute to this, and I would AI might be on that list. But for example, in the US where corporations have started to contract out all of the jobs at the bottom. So it used to be the case that you could come in through the motor pool And if you were good at that, you would sit behind a desk, and then you might end up in management. Those jobs are are gone. There's no ladder up. Or jobs in which there was on-the-job training, those jobs have disappeared. And so I could possibly anticipate working at minimum wage for the rest of my life without health benefits. And um, we think that that has quite a lot to do with the despair that we're seeing in the working class. Mm -hmm. But you, you, you sound, I have to say, sanguine about the idea of, I mean, these are numbers that get thrown around in the Financial Times, in the New York Times, with, without batting an eye, that another 20 million jobs will go in the next decade. But there aren't, the jobs are not gone. I mean, yeah. we have the lowest unemployment rate in America for 60 years. But only if you count one hour a week or 10 hours a week as employment. Uh, that makes it a little better, a little worse, but not that much worse. And, you know, there's been a decline in labor force participation, but that's reversing for the time being. We don't really know. 
I, we're not living in an age of mass unemployment. You know, so and some of what you said makes it sound like that. Now, maybe the jobs that people have got are not the jobs they wanted, and it's clear that a lot of people who used to be working for what was called generous motors on $26 an hour are now working at $7.50 an hour or so, and they don't like that very much. And we think of that as a big part of despair. Um, and But this contracting out, for instance, is really huge. I mean, these are jobs that used to be in-house in Google or in Gallup or wherever and are now contracted out to the Ram Jam Service Corporation or whatever it's called, which basically has no room for promotion at all. So the hope is gone. I mean, there's no possibility of building a life for yourself in one of those things. So, you know, exactly what form this takes, but I don't think it's going to take the form of mass unemployment. Creative destruction. Um, people, don't, people don't usually die as a part of creative destruction. I mean, I'm glad venture capitalists are going to find tens of billions of dollars to invent robots. But on the other hand, you know, there is a cost that doesn't, you can't put a monetary value on to a whole society. And if the cost is a level of despair and cynicism that, say, elects a manifestly unqualified person to the White House or leads to suicide on an epidemic scale, then how do you, how do you fight back against I, this? You know, I'm going to push back a little bit. I think that a, a lot of the jobs that disappeared uh, are romantically thought about as good jobs. But a lot of those were not good jobs. Well, no, I, no look, nobody, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing. I mean, going down pit, I mean, Angus was talking about getting dirt under your fingernails. I mean, m most men who went down pit would have been happy if their children didn't follow them necessarily. Yeah. But we also talk, and this is not romantic, about community. Uh, you were just mentioning, you know, three generations in a labor union. This gives, a, within a family, this gives a structure outside the front door. This is who we are. This is our identity. And when you take that away take that away. It acts as if there was an agent taking it away from you. When it goes away, mm -hmm. then what? But at the same time, I think that we could, we and all other rich societies could use robots positively. And I, I have to say the kind of advances that robots allow us could be used well. So I don't want to say death to the robots. No, I but... but, but there are other ways of structuring, and it's a policy choice, and it's policy choices that are being made actively in Germany, in France, um, in all the other wealthy countries that are not actually seeing what we're seeing in the U.S. Right. And then what we're seeing in the U.S. is a big sucking sound where corporations have become so powerful that they can um, run the show. But I don't know that it's really a robot question as much as it's a question about who gets to make the decisions about how the pie is divided. Yeah. Okay. So just a couple of points. I mean, one is these technological changes are the basis of our current prosperity. And if they had not happened in the past, we would only be, you know, half as rich or a quarter as rich as we are today. So that really is the engine that makes us all better off. And you want to be very careful about tampering with it. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to talk about is just, you know, and again, we use this analogy in the book. If you look what happened in the Industrial Revolution, you know, that did horrible things to a lot of people. So the capitalists got rich. The share of GDP going to profits went up. Um, real wages stagnated from about 1800 through till 
um, my friend Bob Allen likes to say on the day that Marx published Das Kapital, um, you know, <laughs> wages began to rise again. But you had a 50-year wage stagnation until, you know, all the handloom weavers were either dead or gone, you know. And then things began to pick up again. And so no one's ever argued that these major episodes of technical progress have been without social costs. Last point, the working class, the one we're sort of saying where, you know, they lived in these towns, they had their unions, they had a real life that really worked for them. That was created in, after the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it didn't exist since time immemorial, you know. And so... What we're going to have to do, and this is really hard, and I don't know whether policy, I mean, I don't think policy has much chance of doing this. This sort of has to be spontaneous order of some sort. A new class is going to form, and new forms of social organization, which are going to replace those, because they're not, you know, that form doesn't work anymore. I would definitely say, though, that the, the, the norms about what, what it is acceptable for people at the top to take home in their pay envelope have changed dramatically. And why the old norms uh, uh, broke down, I don't know, but I do think that the social fabric has been badly ripped by that fact that it's okay for someone to take half a billion dollars home. And that we need, If I don't see how we survive if we don't right. begin to address that. That's something I've noticed since I came to America. And someone the other day said, too, the difference between this generation of Republicans in Washington and the old ones was the old ones pretended that trickle-down would work. They don't even pretend anymore. They just say, we're going to pass law which redistributes money upwards, and we're not even going to pretend it benefits you. You, know. you have a new set of figures coming. What are we going to see? I will be very surprised if we don't see that life expectancy in the U.S. has fallen for the third year in a row, which, depending on how you count, has either not happened for a full century since the 1918 flu epidemic, or ever, given that vital statistics were only complete in the U.S. in the 1930s, so that it's never happened in the U.S. before. And this is for the, this is for the whole population, not just whites or yeah. uneducated whites. This is everyone. And Case, thank you. Thank you very much. Angus Dean. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I've been talking to you. One definition of playwright is someone who thinks of what he should have said at a party a half hour after he gets home. I have felt the same way since I met Professors Case and Deaton. I hope to speak with them again sometime and continue the conversation in a historical framework and include some of the ideas that I thought of about a half an hour after our interview was over. I worry that it isn't just a question of the weavers or the journalists all dying out and then entering a new era of stability. There was a lot of violence attached to the weaver's demise. Work is ultimately the social force that gives all our lives meaning, and when you take it away or degrade it, people become enraged. And I fear that that anger, as we get deeper into the new era of machines, won't always go into self-harm. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, you can make a donation. Please do, to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.